0: Hey people, welcome to Accidental Gods, to the podcast where we believe that another world is still possible and that if we all work together, there is time to create the future that we would be proud to leave to the generations that come after us. I'm Amanda Scott, your host in this journey into possibility. And this week's guest is another of those I have elevated in my podcasting years, to the pantheon of people I must listen to, whatever they say, wherever and however they say it. And I am genuinely thrilled to welcome him onto this podcast. Dr. Simon Michaud has been a physicist and a geologist. His PhD is in mining engineering and he worked for years in the mining industry in Australia. And then, as you'll hear, in 2015, he moved to Europe and became involved in urban mining, or reverse metallurgy, which, to those of us who don't inhabit these worlds, is probably best explained as the recovery of essential minerals from existing waste, and we would probably call it the beginnings of the circular economy. And from there, Simon moved to Scandinavia, where he now works in the Geological Survey of Finland, and is a regular advisor to the Finnish Parliament. From all of which you will gather that Simon is deeply embedded in the actual physicality of the world we inhabit. And because he's also deeply committed to finding a future that works, he understands the world that we could inhabit and how we could actually make it happen. Of all the people I've encountered as I roam the digital web, looking for ways that we can shift our relationship with the living web, Simon is the one who has his finger on the actual logistics of what's going on, he can list the reasons why most of the targets for our transition away from fossil fuels are simply logistically impossible. It's not until you hear his crunchy of the numbers that you begin to realise how much arm-waving is going on in the corridors of power, how much raw self-delusion is being practised by the people that we still, at some deep subconscious level, trust. To keep the show on the road. And I think we need to know this. It's hard, it's sobering, it's shocking on many levels. But if we aren't grounded in reality, then we're not going to be able to build a way forward. So hold on to your seats. This is not easy. But I really believe that we do need to know it. So, people of the podcast, please welcome Dr. Simon Michaud all the way from Finland. Just to open up for everybody, Simon, by the time you hear this, will almost certainly have published a paper on the resource-based economy which I think is going to open up the areas of discussion that this podcast is all about in a way that that people with power actually listen to and so Simon's here to unpick this. Thank you, Simon. We have snow. It's almost Finnish out there just now. It's Snow of the sort that stops the UK in its tracks because there's two inches of snow and it's never quite got below zero. But everything stopped. <laughs> there we go. So it feels like Finland. It's not quite minus thirty and and, and freezing freezing pipes in and out, but
1: it's close. There's a local joke here. You're finished. You've been finished. Yeah, yeah. We've been finished.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we get finished a lot easier than the Finns do. I, I don't think it's ever been minus thirty here. Anyway. We're heading towards the resource-based economy, and we're heading there via the concepts of energy blindness, materials blindness, and minerals blindness, and then Simon Michaud's hierarchy of needs and how we address them. So Simon, thank you and welcome. I'm enormously grateful, and it's good to
1: see you. Nice to see you again.
0: Thank you again. Yes, this is version two, people, because I screwed up on version one. But the start of version one is lovely we started talking about materials blindness and until I interrupted with a bunch of questions that were entirely unnecessary you were telling us how you became aware of the materials and minerals and energy blindness of our entire culture that needs to change so can you kick us off with more or less the same again
1: okay so when I came I I came from the Australian mining industry and I was working in research and development for a long time 18 years Then I joined the private sector and feasibility studies. So when I actually came to Europe, uh, I I was collecting information to show that the mining industry was entering into an era of business model that was very difficult. It's going to be very difficult for the people who stay in it. And and I didn't think corporate leadership really understood. And their solution to everything was just to fire everyone and, and just wait till the market comes back. And that's not going to work for much longer. They're going to have to actually change the way they do things. Anyway, so I I came to Europe to learn industrial recycling, and I joined the University of Liège, and I used to attend these meetings in Brussels and Berlin and listen to the European Commission tell us about their plans. And I came across the H2020 Research Project and the Circular Economy. And what blew me away was a general, uh, there was a series of blind spots. Uh, in Europe, we don't do any mining. And in fact, it's seen as dirty and unclean and unfashionable. However, everyone uses technology like computers and cars, and, and that all comes from mining. But what happens is we buy them off the market. They're all made in China, or they're all made of outside of Europe. And so there was just this general, how do you say, the, 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 they were completely unaware that Um, the, the raw materials weren't being sourced in Europe and the people there didn't understand that and they hadn't done anything like that for decades. So it wasn't part of their thinking. They saw everything as an economic action and so they were completely untethered to the realities of harvesting raw materials and then turning them into stuff. Energy was never, even though they were talking about the new energy future, there was absolutely no awareness of our current dependency on fossil fuels. And they're still unaware. If, if, uh, um, if you took away coal, for example, from planet Earth, all the manufacturing systems in uh, around the world, including China, would simply stop. To make a solar panel, you've got like a silicon wafer, and you've got to heat that silicon up to two thousand two hundred degrees Celsius. At the moment, they use coking coal to do that. Now you can, you can use other things like biofuels or hydrogen, but to scale it up to actually do what coking coal does for us the planet cannot supply that much biomass so the problem is not a new technology we can't have the raw materials to 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 do it any other way so take away coal all our existing technology including solar panels and wind turbines and electric vehicles and their batteries will stop and we haven't got uh, um, uh, a substitute for that and because we don't like talking to the Chinese, and they don't like talking to us, this is never discussed,
0: mm-hmm.
1: right? And and so we are chasing ourselves in circles, increasingly smaller circles, without actually realizing that the monster in the room is not even looked at. So I, it it really just it really struck me as the leadership in the European Commission levels, but also everyone else I talked to were oblivious to reality; they're untethered from it. There was no feasibility study for macro-scale transition away from fossil fuels. It just didn't exist, and there were no numbers. What I mean by that, what I wanted to see, after 14 years of talking about it, 14 years, and the most amazing amount of money that's been thrown around on this, <sighs> you Muppets. <laughs> yes,
0: Hang on, 14 years of them talking about it or 14 years of them talking about it in your company?
1: No, no, in um, in Europe. Right. 2008 is when the circular economy was launched. Oh, really? It wasn't a thing before then? Not really. Not really. It, it was an idea that wasn't formalized. What they realized was that, all the, that they were worried that European businesses were in trouble. Certain core businesses, and they needed raw materials that were being sourced from outside of Europe.
0: Okay. China.
1: Right. But it's not the raw materials they're worried about. It was actually the businesses themselves. So even at its inception, they were not actually interested in the raw materials. And now they've got what's called the critical raw materials map. And so got economic importance and economic scarcity. That map is used by everyone to determine this is what we should be looking at. You know, there's some, some metals in, uh, in there that are in the critical zone. The critical stuff colored red and everything around it is blue. However, that's not looking to the future. That's actually calculating for the previous four years of data. Oh, Lord. So while the system is still running on fossil fuels, that's what's critical. Take fossil fuels away and none of that exists anymore. Let's interrupt briefly. What's critical? What is it? What do they consider
0: critical? critical As in, it's becoming hard to get, or critical as in the price is going to double? You said everything was an economic assessment. Is this just they're becoming too expensive?
1: Too expensive, but also scarcity in. Um, so you've got one axis which is economic importance, something that we really need, right? Yeah, you, know, you know, we really need steel, for example. We really need copper, and then you've got uh, um, uh, you've got uh, economic importance. Then you've got economic scarcity or or, or a scarcity profile. And there's like a formula they use for that. And it's a combination of scarcity is supposed to be reflected by price going up. But the price is going up because of scarce.
0: Okay. Yeah, that's market fundamentals working as intended. But scarce means as in. There isn't very much I, left. I remember you saying previously that that the planet is basically made of minerals. It's not that they're not yeah. there. The whole of the Andes is made has got copper in it. It's just that yeah. it's really hard to get. Also, I think we don't want to layer level the Andes. No. So scarcity for them, for the people doing these assessments, is that some intern somewhere has gone and looked at the prices. Has anybody at any point gone and looked at what it takes to dig it out of the ground? How deep the mines are? How big the mines are? What 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 we're actually accessing.
1: So that is the missing element. Right. Some people have looked at it. In Australia, they have indeed looked at it because that's their end of the business. Okay. Uh, and the mining productivity index decreased about 50% between 20, 2001 and 2012. What that meant was twice the amount of work, physical work had to be done to get the same unit of metal out of the ground.
0: So was it twice as expensive as a
1: result? The Prices did go up, okay. uh, but prices are highly sort of volatile and there's a lot of, speculation and above ground forces that do that. Mining costs have been going through the roof, right. like across the board. And and there was a blowout in 2005 of metal price. And I think that is related to a signature that started in the oil industry.
0: Do you want to say more about that?
1: Yeah, sure. So so um, she got is a chart that shows a blowout of metal prices in January 2005.
0: As in spike. Is a blowout when it goes up or when it goes down?
1: Yeah it 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 goes up everything uh, the price of everything went up like like a lot and and we're talking about all base metals precious metals oil gas and coal and that put the system under such pressure and 3 years later we had the global financial crisis yeah so this is actually the genesis of the gfc now what happened in january 2005 global oil production plateaued like it it rolled over and it plateaued but Demand continued to increase. So, what happened was the swing producer at the time, Saudi Arabia, I believe, was asked to raise oil production like they always claimed they could, and they couldn't. Oops. The reason I say they couldn't, they brought on a 146% increase of rig count. Increase that is, 146% more rigs drilling for oil on their deposits. And that they brought them on as quickly as possible, but they still had a 4% decrease in production. Right, right. So that meant all their conventional oil reserves weren't producing. And, and they've since gone up uh, since then, but now they've actually rolled over and they've peaked and they're now declining. But they're now sweating their deposit as fast as they can to maintain production targets. Right. So for a short period of time, the Saudis could not meet oil supply and demand uh constraints
0: quick question why did demand go up is demand just rising and rising because we live in an economy that has to grow and it has to grow by increasing its consumption of energy
1: yes and also population increases every year okay right and every economy has the metric of two percent growth okay and if we're not growing something's wrong
0: and growing equals use more energy it's impossible to grow without there being more energy input
1: yes yeah oil in particular oil in particular gdp correlates very strongly with oil consumption so, or total liquids consumption is what it is now. So, uh, um, so what happened was the um, demand continued to rise, but supply had to stabilize. So, for a period of time, supply and demand separated. Right. And that provided a the conditions for an oil price spike, like a speculative bubble. Right. And so, the price rocketed up. And the, the marker for the start of the global financial crisis is when the oil price peaked and then it crashes, so we can't take this anymore, and the GFC kicked off. And it was blamed on the weakest link breaking, which at the time was um, American real estate in the what was called the subprime mortgage market. Right. That was just the weakest link. Right. But the whole system was being cooked for three years. It was being cooked before it broke. And we fixed it. Kind of like ours is just now. Well, funny you should mention that. Uh, we fixed it by printing money. Yeah quantitative easing and that's how it all suddenly went away and everything got better but since then we've had to put more and more money in to keep the system going Mm. and i believe the system died in 2008 and and we've been it's it's like uh, uh what's the phrase the dinosaur is dead but the brain doesn't know it yet because the last the blood's still being pumped up the neck
0: right Right. Yeah, I always have this vision of Wiley e. coyote out over the canyon. Yeah, that running out over thin air, and you just haven't quite looked down yet. But yeah, it's the same idea. So basically, we've got a, an economic system that is on life support and being kept apparently in zombie form by yeah us pumping imaginary money. I mean, the money isn't tethered to anything real anymore.
1: And the the they're the making it up, but the parcels of money they're putting in are getting larger and larger and larger. And when you compare historically what's been done in the past to what's being done now, but like uh, the race to the—if you were to adjust for inflation and bring everything into line—I did this in one of my papers—the race to the moon, like you know, the landing Neil Armstrong on the room, that cost 145 billion in 2018 numbers, right? In 2018 U.S. dollars.
0: Wow.
1: Right. We we put in the war machine. Uh, I think it was like uh, three or four trillion for the um, a Vietnam. Afghanistan and the Iraq wars. Really? Right. And QE1, 2, and 3, that was like a couple of trillion on top of that. Yeah. But the COVID package of 2020, that was 5.4 trillion on its own. Right. Right. So the numbers just don't mean anything anymore.
0: Yeah. Well, they don't, do they?
1: It's- it, 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 no. And then COVID happened, and, and it's like the mask that everyone's and, – and now we're on the razor's edge, I think, of the next – economic downturn and they can't print money their way out of this annual because they're now saturated if they tried printing money now they would um, trigger a hyperinflationary spiral they've prevented it so far by keeping controlling both sides of the balance sheet and keeping certain assets off the balance sheet and that's how we've actually not been subject to hyperinflation but but I think now it's time
0: okay we we could go down that route. But I spend quite a lot of time on the podcast talking about economics. Let's leave that yeah, yeah, okay. for potentially later. And let's come back to, because what really always struck me about listening with anything that you've been doing is nailing nailing the numbers in ways that are irrefutable. So let's go back to the Muppets in the EU who are trying to find find out how European business can keep going. And they haven't really got their heads around yeah. What's actually going on? But they have an idea that they want a circular economy where the output of one business becomes the input to the other business and where recycling is 100%, and we've just discovered perpetual motion because it doesn't take any energy. Leaving that last bit aside and bringing us forward to from then to now and the work that you've been doing since then, where are you seeing the big holes in their? Thinking then and now, where, where are they just not seeing? Where is the materials and minerals blindness affecting Europe and then presumably affecting the rest of the world?
1: So uh, the problem here is the last 50 years, we've used ideology to solve all our problems. If we don't like something, we ignore it. And if we ignore right. it, it doesn't exist. <laughs> right. So the circular economy, as it was proposed originally, is, a, is the best game in town, but in its, and it's a stepping stone or a gateway to the real thing. Which I'm, I've now put forward as the resource balanced economy, okay. and that may be a stepping stone too. But, but, but um, in its current form, what we call the circular economy is thermodynamically impossible. Right, it's just not balanced.
0: Okay, tell us what it is and and where the holes are in that. Then,
1: so the idea of the circular economy instead, it's in the linear economy, which we we like to you know poke poke fun at Australia. Yeah, the land of milk and honey, where they had all the opportunities in the world, but they still screwed the pooch. Uh, <laughs> they, um, Poor pooch. Yeah, well, they did, <laughs> it, 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 and, and that's exactly how everyone feels. Yes. <laughs> Poor <laughs> you pooch. My dog. It's what so were you nice. <laughs> Yeah,
0: yeah, uh, Yes. Uh,
1: we will get even if the next isn't uh, right. So, what we do in Australia is we dig stuff up out of the ground. We dig stuff out of the ground. We turn it into stuff to stuff we don't need to impress people we don't like, and then we throw it away. And then it goes into landfill.
0: Yeah, well, I th- don't think Australia is alone in that. We said we don't do the digging out of the ground, but we still pay money to get stuff we don't need for- to impress people we don't like who don't care. And then we throw it away. Yeah. Yes. So
1: I actually like, I I, I I like making fun of Australia, and I'm Australian because I can do it. So you're allowed to do it, and yeah. So, bah, ha, ah, ha, 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 ha. Right, so uh, the whole premise behind the linear economy which is how we got this far the last couple of centuries, uh, is in, it's, we are consuming resources like locusts as fast as possible with absolutely no thought about what resources we have left, sensible land stewardship, any idea that there might come a point where there are limits. And we're not running out of resources. Our ability to access resources is what we're running out of. Okay, right? That's the problem. Right. So the circular economy was the idea that instead of actually extracting materials out of the ground, could we recycle our waste? So instead of actually dumping our waste into landfill, take that waste, recycle it, get what we need from that. And so everything that comes out of the waste goes into manufacturing, manufacturing goes around, and you have this perfectly uh, cycle. We're no longer mining and we're no longer dumping waste. Okay. it's It's a lovely idea. However, however, uh, the stuff that we manufacture and then consume, we are not collecting to recycle. There are real problems with that. The stuff's not designed to recycle, which means we can't even get yeah. what we need out of it. And the uh, energy you've got to put in to actually separate everything out to the separate elements. Like if you, some things just aren't possible. Like you, you have a cup of tea on your desk in front of you. Imagine if you will, if you wanted to separate that cup of tea into its constituent components. Right. Like, like uh, I've got my coffee here and it's got milk in it. So get the coffee, separate out into water, milk and, coffee. and the, the coffee grains and 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 and, and all that and, and to the point where you can reconstitute it.
0: Yeah, and drink it again. Yeah.
1: It's 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 chemically transformed. It can't yes, you can't do it. Right. So that's, the, that's the challenge of the lot of the recycling actually faces. So, the waste stream volumes that go around that loop, what goes into manufacturers many times larger than what comes out of recycling at the other end. Yep. Now, the existing circular economy does not encounter, does not have an energy term of what it takes to do anything. It takes energy to move stuff around. It takes energy to do all industrial actions. They just don't think of that. Um, money is not in there either, like finance, and that's our decision making of, of whether we should do something or not. Yep. And there's uh, they're now it didn't, but now they're starting to think about information systems, where they're actually sort of tracking where information uh, can tell us what to do. Because in recycling, in the recycling world, the big challenge: how do we get the right residue into the right process plant fast enough to make an engineering decision? And that's the challenge, uh, and and it's it's really hard. So the cir- the circular economy in its current form won't work right, but we're looking in the right direction. So now we need to jump to the next possible thing that actually does look at the holes in the circular economy, and that's the paper I have just written and proposed, right? um, And that is a proposal that needs to be pulled apart and then put back together to actually make it – I I see it as an evolutionary thing, as in someone will now come back with an evolution of.
0: So my evolution of it, or one question that I have, is – In the conversation we're having at the moment, we're assuming that the businesses continue, we're assuming that the economic system continues, and that everybody, everything is predicated on making money. Mm. However, there's a quote in your paper, civilization is always and everywhere a thermodynamic phenomenon, which really struck me. And it tails with everything that you were saying, which is that we are a civilization based on the fact that we found a whole bunch of ancient sunlight and we're using it without thinking what we're doing with it. And we have used as much as we can without contaminating our environment to the point where we can't exist anymore. So at some point quite soon, it seems to me, I hope, the people who hold the reins of power are going to start needing to do the metrics with everybody of what do we actually need? Mm -hmm. Because if I look at the stuff that you I can buy online. I don't need 90% of it to survive. Working out what I actually do need is going to be difficult. And working out what we need as a culture, because I live in the middle of nowhere, and what I need is very different to somebody who lives in the middle of Helsinki. But if we're going to work out a genuinely resource-based economy where we do design things such that the outflow of one production system flows into the next with a minimum extra energy to create one into the other, to separate the coffee into its constituent parts. We're going to need to work out, do we need coffee in the first place? Coffee is probably not a good example, but do we need cars? I remember hearing you at some point saying that if every vehicle in Europe was changed to be an electric vehicle tomorrow, it would take 16,000 years to mine all the lithium. Was that you who said that? And that's not going to happen. So we need to stop thinking that that's a thing. Is this? Are you hearing anybody beginning to ask those questions? I am now. Okay, good.
1: I put this work out in 2021. It turns out there's a few people who have done similar work and have come to similar conclusions. There is a chap called Mark Mills in the Manhattan Institute in America who published two papers um i think he published them about this uh he, he might have even published them a little bit before i published my work he has a fundamentally different approach to all of this and he came away from it i can send you the links if you like but he he came back to the same conclusions when we go to the green transition what we're actually talking about isn't going to work and it's just simply not possible with thinking as, as it is now but he was buried he, it was very hard to actually, for him to get any sort of information out there. Uh, so my study was to look at uh, what do we replace around us now and then work backwards. He looked at mining rates and what are we doing now and the energy that comes from that. And if you were to transfer it into the green transition, what would that mean? And so he, he all right, so see so, so he, he came to the same thing. There's another guy called um, Harold Svedrop in Norway. He actually has evolved the Club of Rome models. He took World 3 that from the original 1972 model, which was actually very primitive, and he has accelerated it to modern technological capability and now it includes everything. And he can actually predict quite well price fluctuations across all metals, and he's got metals in there. And he's actually worked out how long will our existing resources last. Right? So there's now three of us three very different approaches, but we're saying essentially the same thing and we're starting to link up and, and, and support each other. You know, um, and There's another chap called Lars Shenko who wrote a book called uh, Energy, the Unpopular Truth.
0: We'll find it. I'll put it in the show notes.
1: Yeah. So anyway, so we, we're now, um, now that we're uh, our politicians are saying we will now commit by 2030 to have one third of the system electric right uh, they're now starting to actually sort of start to to look at what's actually involved here. and 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 the, and and the tears are starting and the screams of pain are starting and uh, and and we're now starting to do the math. I routinely get invited into high-level groups to present my work. like I'm now presenting for the fourth time to members of the Finnish Parliament okay. um in a couple of months. and the Department of the environment, is 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 on 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 top of that they're trying to get their arms around what it means okay brilliant right so they still don't quite know what to do about it but they they they're, they're still processing what do we do
0: and will they do they then feedback at international level do you think because i can imagine that finland sweden norway denmark iceland scotland when it gains independence could could form quite an interesting nordic social democratic hub. and I completely get that left and right no longer apply anymore, but there's a license that people have in nations which have an agreement that the Commonwealth is worth supporting, as opposed to places like the US and England, where the point is to make rich people super rich. And and make sure the small boats never get here because that's obviously really important. So
1: <laughs> today's last couple of headlines, I mean, it's good, it, it's, it's it's a good distraction.
0: Right. Yeah, of course it is. And and the Beeb and the Daily Mail and all the rest of it are really happy to be screaming about small boats because it saves anybody looking anywhere else. But the BBC similarly, every time somebody comes on to talk about what they call the now the climate emergency, they're told ahead of time, because I have friends with this in the green room that they must be optimistic.
1: Yes, yes, I've heard N- that too.
0: Optimistic means that you must say The system can continue exactly as it is and nobody's going to have to change any part of their lifestyle because otherwise we're frightening people and we're not giving them any alternatives. And what seems to me that the work that you and these other people you've mentioned are doing is opening the door to guys, that's not actually a physical possibility, which people haven't done before. We've all said we don't think this is a good idea, but we've not done the it can't actually happen. So can you throw us some of the numbers that are of the impossibilities? Copper. Lithium.
1: Okay. So I've heard quite a few times now, people have actually said, we really like your work because you can say the things we can't. Right. Right. So so because as says, they are encouraged, very, very strictly encouraged to be positive and not scare the horses.
0: Right.
1: Now, m- my approach is not to ask anyone's opinion. It is it essentially, screw you, hippie. Here are the numbers. This is what they mean. And then publish them all before they can be stopped. Right. And so now that they're out, now let's discuss what it means. Right. Right. So what I've done is I assembled a first of all an audit of what did fossil fuels actually do for us in the calendar year of 2018. Like how much did we consume? How many cars were there? And what what distance did they travel? Right. Because if they're all electric vehicles, now you've got to say well uh, how many batteries? But then those batteries need to be charged. How often do we need to charge them? Well. They consume a certain amount of energy per 100 kilometers. Right. More kilometers means more charging. More charging means more electricity has got to come off the grid. More electricity means we've now got to expand the electric grid. And so I actually did the numbers for that. And yes, it's a very primitive calculation. Someone else looks at this and says, well, you know, we could do so much better. But, you know, it, it was, um, it, it, that was a 1,000-page report in the end. It started out as a single picture in a PowerPoint presentation. And then when I tried to write down what I meant by it, it—that's it, four hundred thousand words. Yeah, it's about that's about right. I think it was like four hundred eighty. Wow. Um, and and they said you can't that you can't say this without explaining this. You can't say it without explaining that.
0: Can you give us the edited highlights? <laughs> because we can't have the four thousand pages. But
1: yes. Okay. Okay. So the edited highlights. It. I'm actually making a poster uh, for the world. Uh, um, mining congress in australia okay so the edit highlights and baseline calculation the global fleet of vehicles i estimated at 1.41 billion which is very conservative the real numbers higher in 2018 they they traveled 15.9 trillion kilometers in the calendar year wow so i made some assumptions with regard to what is hydrogen fuel cell and what's an electric vehicle All short-range stuff should be electric vehicle and all long-range should be hydrogen fuel cell. Why? Because, very good question, the battery storage mass in an EV, like the the weight of the battery, was 3.2 times the hydrogen fuel cell tank of the equivalent vehicle. So what that meant was for the same energy storage, the hydrogen fuel cell can last 3.2 times longer. Yep. Or go 3.2 times further. For the same mass of stuff. Right. For the same mass, for the same mass on like the same mass on the truck, or the same mass on the bus. Okay. However, hydrogen is an energy carrier. You've got to make it. Yep. And if you're not going to use fossil fuels to make it, you're going to use electrolysis to split water. Right. So but you need two point five times the electricity to make that hydrogen compared to charging the equivalent battery. So there are definite pros and cons here now.
0: So it goes three point times further, but it costs 2.5 times the electricity. So you still get a bit of an advantage from the hydrogen.
1: You do. But, but but remember, 2.5 times the electricity telescopes into how many more power stations you've now got to build.
0: Okay. And it also assumes 100% efficiency
1: of the hydrogen or the EV. No, 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 no. I, I, every, every vehicle class was based on a commercially available EV or hydrogen fuel cell and in the specs okay. in the engineering specs they say we take uh we we require X amount of power to go 100 kilometers Oh,
0: okay that's handy
1: <laughs> or for the hydrogen fuel cell they say we will consume X amount of hydrogen to travel 100 kilometers and so and and the nice telescope to forward off that
0: so two more questions just before we go on, because this I haven't looked at hydrogen fuel cells. So I know that, for instance, in Shetland, they're, they're splitting a lot of water and they have a lot of hydrogen cars in Shetland because they have a lot of wind. Mm-hmm. And how easy is it then? Because one of the features of fossil fuels is that they're relatively straightforward to transport, particularly oil. You build a great big pipeline and you send it from country to country. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's always struck mm-hmm. me that a hydrogen car was kind of like the Hindenburg on wheels. It's basically a bomb waiting for someone to spark it. But leaving that aside... How do we, can we transport hydrogen or does it take more energy to transport it? Do you have to put it in a truck that's using up more hydrogen than it takes to transport it?
1: Uh, you, you've got to, um, storage of hydrogen, transport of hydrogen, the logistics and engineering of that is actually quite much more complicated than transporting petroleum products. Uh, petroleum products you don't need, it just sits in a, in a, in a tank. mm hydrogen, you've got to compress it and and, and it wants to escape through uh, especially as, as things age. So there's a whole lot of engineering things. And yes, it's probably is more dangerous than petroleum fuels, but this is something that society will just have to come to terms with
0: hmm.
1: um if it actually wants industrialization, okay. So that's actually one of the things that actually the the hydrogen economy has to face, the storage of and transport of a large amount of hydrogen right across large portions of society, and we're not ready for that.
0: No, especially not in a way that's energy efficient. If you're having to use energy to make the hydrogen and then use energy to transport the hydrogen, yeah. what is the energy return over energy invested of the hydrogen at the end of it? Is it less than
1: one? No, no, it, it is not less than one, okay. right, but it's close to one. Right. Um, it, it, it depends on what you include in that calculation mm-hmm. is is the answer. Uh, it comes down to how do you generate the electricity to make that hydrogen. Okay. Because uh, you know wind turbines, for example, you've got to make the wind turbine, you've got to put it up, and and then wind turbines like solar panels are highly intermittent in supply. So now you need a ba- battery buffer bank to to, to, uh, to keep him stable, and that that's actually the uh, the bone of contention in my work is how big should that buffer be? Because
0: you have four weeks, right, as your buffer, is that right?
1: Yeah, you know, I had twenty eight days, 28, 28 days, and the Princeton University in America believes we only need five to seven hours all economists are now using that number do they have a lot
0: of wind in princeton is that just that they look out the window and it's always wind blowing and they don't realize
1: that it does stop summer uh no why then magical thinking
0: <laughs> that's as much as we've got so that's as much as we need is that the answer
1: they haven't had to do it yet okay right and and, and they talk a lot of sh- that that sounds disrespectful but i i've being taken to task by these guys, and I've called them out, and there's actually not a lot of numbers behind what they're claiming. Right. Let's go through this. Okay, yes, right. Solar solar power for example, solar power for example, uh, they they reckon they only need five to seven hours, and what what drives that is supply and demand must balance to a millionth of a second, right? And sometimes, uh, yeah, a millionth of a second. That's the engineering that uh, that's behind the power that comes out of your wall. Wow, it's amazing! Wow, and we and we do that with, with at the moment with the gas industry. Okay, gas can be turned on and off, up and down at will in any weather, and it can be telescoped over a long distance, and that's how we do it. Okay. And all nations, for example, balance their power grid by trading power between themselves. And for so, and and so like the wind turbines in Denmark smooth out their power grid. And balance with power from Sweden and power from Germany, Right. both are fossil fuels Right. based, most of the time. So and and so it's highly variable. And so 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 th- this is the problem. We have never had to balance a renewable power grid internally at all, right? Right. That's of, of any large size. So if you've and and what's it, sometimes when they've got supply and demand goes up and down in a twenty four hour cycle. At night we need less power. In, during the day we need more power okay sometimes demand exceeds supply and there's a gap sometimes supply exceeds uh, uh and then there's an excess yeah. they catch the excess and then they keep it for a couple of days and they put it to then a couple of days later when there's a shortfall that's what they uh they, they use for that and, yeah
0: how do they keep it at the moment how do we if we've got let's say a couple of days of excess how is it currently stored
1: it's not it's, 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 well, whatever, it's, these systems are so small that it just goes into the grid. Okay. And the gas industry is used to match.
0: Okay. So you just burn less gas for a while and, and then your supply goes down. Okay.
1: Yeah. Yeah. You just, just turn the, the gas, the gas plant turns up or down. Okay. Nuclear cannot do that. Coal ha- has difficulty doing that. Okay. Hydro, you can do that a bit. Yeah. Okay. Right. So watch, so watch this though. You may notice this in Scotland, right? The sun in winter is not as strong as the sun in summer.
0: Oh, that, yeah.
1: Have you noticed Yeah, that? we get snow. <laughs> right. Well, so, so <laughs> which then covers the solar panel. Uh, but the, the, the solar radiance is much, much stronger. Right. And if you've now got the, the, the world economic, uh, the, the um, I, uh, IEA has projected wind and solar to take 70% of the energy mix.
0: Winter and summer.
1: For 2050. It is everything. Right. Everything. It, it is now, uh, right. And so, so now you've got solar taking 38% of the energy mix. So large, it has to be internally balanced now, and it cannot be balanced off against something else.
0: This is the theory of the IEA. This isn't reality.
1: Okay. Yeah, that, that that's that's why that's this is what I'm calling out. So the amount of power in summer you've got to collect the excess, keep it for five or six months or seven months, and then release it slowly over a following five or six months during winter. Now go back and ask yourself is five or six hours enough?
0: Yeah, how are we gonna do that?
1: Is twenty eight days enough? Yeah, that, that exactly. Yeah. So the answer. The answer to this, instead of flogging ourselves to try and find more power storage, right, is to redesign our electronic technology that can cope with variable power and power spikes and all that. And we have a society that that actually can periodically go into a period of dormancy like over winter the way we used to do it. Yeah. We became more in tune with the seasons. Oh, I can
0: imagine the screams of pain. People... Being asked to not switch on their lights after seven o'clock at night. Gosh. Yeah. I'm astonished that this is, nobody's thought about this. Are they planning to just, I don't know, coat Saudi Arabia in solar panels or you know, go to the equator and just make a band of solar panels that, that doesn't have a winter summer? Is this somebody's
1: plan? They haven't thought it through. Right. They just haven't. They they, they just haven't thought it through. Uh, what, what they do is they talk in vague platitudes. Hmm. The never, never, she'll be right. Um, we'll recycle everything, we'll reuse everything, we'll use everything better, we'll do gooder. Do gooder on all sectors.
0: Okay. Everything will miraculously be improved. In your view, if you're going to do 28 days of storage, what kind of batteries – because I was looking the other day at salt-based batteries, but we could only get them from Austria and they wouldn't send them to the UK because Brexit. So – and anyway, they would be very, very, very big. (laughs) Um, which is okay if you live on a farm. You know, if we have something the size of a shed that provides battery storage for the year, that's okay. But is that a thing? Is salt really a
1: thing? Pumped hydro um, is the cheapest way to do power storage at the moment, where you've got a hydro, a hydroelectric plant and you've got a reservoir at a raised level. And during the night, you pump water up to that reservoir. And During the day, it comes down and you generate the power as it turns to turbine.
0: And what's the energy return over energy invested for that? What's the...
1: Ah, uh, it's it's almost it's 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 very low.
0: Okay.
1: It's 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 only about thirty percent efficient. All
0: right.
1: You're losing enormous amounts of energy going in, and but it's cheap. Okay. Right. So the pro- the problem is we need something like about two thousand one hundred terawatt hours of power storage in a year's capacity. Wow. But we need sixty five terawatt hours of batteries for the electric vehicle fleet. We need thirty times that for stationary power storage we cannot find enough new sites to put up hydro pump storage to do any of that so there are things like compressed air and flywheels and, and and they work and they have their place but they've got engineering problems in scale up and compressed air in particular underground can only be done in some places like it can't be done just anywhere
0: because
1: well you've got to you've got to find a cavern, a cavern underground. Okay. That's geologically uh, okay. If you if you've got permeable rock full of faults. Okay. You, can. you compress the air the air leaks out.
0: It's just going. Oh, so you don't put a great big steel steel vat in there. You just put it into
1: the ground. You can put a steel vat in there too, but that steel vat will also leak. Okay. A, a, as well. It helps if you're in impermeable rock.
0: Right.
1: And also you've got the how big a void can be supported underground to do all that. Uh, and and so so you can do it, right? And it does work, but good luck scaling it up to literally millions of sites across the planet.
0: What about splitting hydrogen? Splitting water to hydrogen. Is that a way of creating storage or is that just again you just lose
1: too much? So let let's that's that is that's another proposal. So say we've got power, we're gonna use it to split hydrogen. For every fifty five kilowatts we put in, you've got fifteen kilowatts coming out.
0: That's probably less than the hydro.
1: Okay. It's 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 27% efficient. Right. Right. And so so what that means is you need a, a, a three-to-one build-out or a four-to-one build-out to get that. Uh, you've got an economies of scale problem there. Okay. Uh, right. So 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 what it basically means is our and, – and governments of the world, like uh, there's a roadmap of a government in Singapore that they believed – they looked at all sorts of different technologies, and they came to the conclusion that uh, battery storage – was the most sensible way to go forward because you can make them in any weather you can put them in any you know configuration any footprint they can they can be installed very quickly they can be moved okay. um they're not dependent on weather of any kind uh, blah 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 what they are completely oblivious to is the volume of storage they need okay. the the quantity sorry they they have absolutely no idea they they think it's only going to be 5 or 6 hours of capacity right so so what you've got in the renewable world, people working on the battery technology have not been talking to the solar panel wind turbine technology in terms of if we were to do this, because everyone to depend upon fossil fuels for everything to keep working in the background. We're all still supported by oil and gas without realizing it. And that's the problem.
0: Right. So we're not using renewables to make the infrastructure that allows more renewables.
1: Yep, That's right.
0: Do you see a way forward yes. to us doing that? And what's the, if, I can't remember the exact number, I've already written it down and turned the page over, of our current global, or 2018 power use. But it seems to me that that power use is going to have to be a lot less or we're going to use fossil fuels more than we can afford to, that will kick us over the edge into irreversible tipping points if you think those are a thing um before we've got anywhere close to producing the renewables that will provide the power to keep ourselves ticking over as we are
1: so the the, the, the fossil fuel systems are still omnipresent like only about 1% of the vehicle fleet is ev rest is ice uh, the entire maritime shipping industry the entire aviation industry um you know diesel locomotives are still you know quite effective at you know pulling freight over long distances we are a society Oh, and renewable energy represents about 4 or 5% of the global energy pie, primary energy. So the non-fossil fuel system doesn't exist yet, which is why we can't recycle it.
0: Yeah. It also sounds, from what reading your paper, it hasn't even been designed yet, because you were saying that wind turbines are just put into landfill when they're done. I, wait, I can't believe someone designs a wind turbine that can't be recycled.
1: You have to remember, everything around you, like the microphone that's in front of you, for example, has been designed for performance. It hasn't even been designed to last very long. It's been designed for performance. Okay. The best for possible performance, and then you're going to throw it away and buy another microphone. And they, the, the the company that makes that microphone wants you to buy as many microphones as possible. They want your money. They don't care about uh, the fact that uh, you you want their service.
0: But even the people doing wind turbines, do they not think a little differently because they're in embedded in the renewables industry?
1: Who Who designs turbines? The Chinese. Oh. Do they care? No. No, it's money. Give me the money. La, 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 la.
0: <laughs> oh, Simon, <Yeah. laughs> we are so much more screwed than I thought. Okay, I interrupted something quite important there. Go on. Um, okay, I asked you if you saw a way through. And so so let's, just before we go to the way through, because I think that might be podcast three, let's keep going down the where the minerals blindness is. What other... So one of the, the big areas of blindness is that nobody's got their head around how much battery storage we're going to need if we're going to have a not fossil fuel based, power based economy. So there are two options. To that One is we stop being fossil fuel based and the other is we stop being power based. But our current economy cannot function without an input, an increasing input of power. No. Um, so uh, Art Berman said the other day on Nate Nat Hagen's podcast that we've consumed more oil since 1995 than all of the time before that. So we are increasing That's the correct. amount of energy that we're pouring into the system. We are. So the other thing is that we agreed to contract the amount of power that we need. I, I struggle to see how we've reached that agreement. But there are other limits. It seems to me, even if you and I go under a bus tomorrow and the economy keeps trundling on exactly as it is and people who, who want to be optimistic and, and tell us that it's never going to change get their way, they're going to hit other material roadblocks. So I remember copper seemed to be one of them. Lithium seemed to be one of them. I think possibly vanadium was one of them. There were other inputs that are just not there to keep feeding the system. Yep, that's correct. Can you tell us a bit about those?
1: Right. So so at the moment, we think the future is lithium-ion chemistry-based batteries. Right. And so I, I did the actual mapping and the numbers. Uh, and this is all coming out in a paper that's published. So... Sum together all the metal we need for to replace all the cars, some are electric vehicles, and some, some are hydrogen fuel, so cars, trucks, and, and everything. Wind turbines, solar panels will now replace oil and gas. We're going to build some new nuclear power plants. We're going to build some new geothermal power plants, all that stuff. And so we've got two calculations. One is 28 days of buffer, and one is 48 hours of buffer. They were the two references I found, right? Um, I didn't even bother with the five to seven hours because that was clearly bull. Okay. So let's take the 28 days, which I think is actually still still not enough. It's nowhere near enough to actually hit this target. So the big problem here is copper. If we're going to electrify everything, we, we need a lot of copper. You can make batteries out of something else. Now, you can substitute copper with aluminium in some applications, but not all. Like, you can't have copper wiring, for example, in your computer. Uh, you can't have aluminium wiring, so in your computer.
0: Aluminium wiring. What is it about copper that makes it so special? Is it just it's very malleable, very ductile, and, and particularly good at transmitting power?
1: It's the uh, um, therm- it's the electrochemical properties of the metal. The ability to... See, if you want the brute transmission of power over a long distance, where you're actually forcing it through, uh, aluminium works for, say, things like power lines. But if you're talking about the lightning-fast interactions in a uh, semiconductor circuit, that's where you need copper. You could use gold in some applications and silver in some applications.
0: Probably don't have as much of those.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, good. Good luck convincing the gold industry.
0: And we can't use light fibres because I, I, you know, to the village they put in fibre and it,
1: and it seems to sort of work. That does work in some applications. Okay. But that's the transmission of um, information. Okay. Right. Are you transmitting electricity or are you transmitting information? Okay, different. In the form of light bursts. Right,
0: right. okay.
1: Right. That's not saying it's everything, there's no one size fits all here and this is to do a job. Right. So I worked out that we actually need 4.7 billion tons with a B of copper to replace the system that we have around us now. Right. Now, global production in 2019, which is the last year before COVID pandemic supply disruptions, the last year of sensible data we'll see for a long time, the market was producing 24.2 million tonnes. Oh. So, you need to hit 4.7 billion tonnes. We're producing 24. So, we would have to operate 195 years of production to actually hit that target with the assumption that copper is used for other things. This is what we need in addition to what we're doing at the moment. right, so that's copper. Now lithium, uh, look, we we like to think that lithium batteries will be the future. Um good old Elon Musk uh, came up with the idea of uh, uh, yeah, I know uh, uh, he, he came up with the idea of um, <laughs> that was
0: me zipping my mouth shut on any comment about Elon Musk guys
1: so so uh, there's, there's a list of pros and cons associated with Elon, and they're both pretty extreme. He's presented the idea of making batteries without lithium, right? But, but what he does with NMC 532 chemistry, but that uses nickel, manganese, and cobalt.
0: So we get rid of one rare earth and...
1: and uh, well, yeah, and we put pressure on others which already have a shortfall. So let's let's go through it. Lithium in the current plan with the lithium chemistries, are what the IEA believes the market split will be for battery chemistries in 2050, we will need 976 million tonnes. Wow. Right. Now the global market is producing, let me get this right, 95,000 tonnes in 2019. Okay. That is 10,258 years of operation at current mining levels. Wow. So the next one is nickel. We need 970 million tonnes of nickel. Mining production is 2. Point, uh, um million tonnes. So that's 413 years of production for nickel. And the last one is cobalt. I've got a whole list of these, but let's go to cobalt. We need 225 million tonnes, but we are producing 126,000 tonnes. And so for cobalt, we need to be operating at 1,790 years. Wow. Right, so so what you've got here is, uh, oh, uh, the, the funniest one of all. Uh, this is not funny. Sorry. <laughs> the most extreme. <laughs> solid uh, solid state batteries is going to be dominated by three chemistries. They think one of those chemistries is uh, needs a lot of germanium. Now, germanium is not a rare earth, but we need four point one million tons, according to the energy splits that are proposed. We are four point one million tons. Current global production is 143 tonnes. <laughs> so how many years is that? 29,113 years.
0: Simon, why has nobody done this arithmetic before?
1: Because ideologically it has never occurred to us. I'm, I'm, and I'm possibly I'm a little crazy, which is why it's occurred to me and not anyone else.
0: But it's also, you're making the assumption that the current level of, of production continues and presumably stuff gets harder to find. And as far as I know, most of these things are mined in countries that are currently war zones.
1: Yes, that's right, and it gets worse. Take away fossil fuels, and a lot of this stuff checks out.
0: Because we can't get to it without the extra energy of the fossil
1: fuels. We don't mine with wind turbines and solar panels. We mine with fossil fuels. Okay. Yeah. We don't manufacture with wind turbines and solar panels. We manufacture with fossil fuels. Right, so so we, we're actually getting to a point here, and the, the point is actually once, once made cannot be unmade and tells us what has to happen next. All right. So the obvious thing now is, well, let's just open more mines. It's easy, right? <laughs> all right And, and so now, now let's go to what's called stated reserves. Now, a resource is a patch of ground that's mineralized more strongly than back, background mineralization. Okay. Right. Uh, for example, in seawater, there's lithium. But it's such low trace elements that that how much effort do you have to go through to get a single kilogram of lithium out of the seawater? Right. That and That's the problem. Right. Right. Uh, Reserve is actually based on some uh, uh, engineering assessment that we can actually access it. It's economic, but it's also technology. Right. We can only drill so deep. We can't go below three kilometers in depth, for example. Because it's too hot? Um, It's too too deep. Uh, It's it's too far and and, uh, it heats a problem down there. Yeah. But if, if, if we've got a lot of metal on Mars, does that mean we can actually access it? No,
0: okay, that's true. This is back to asteroid mining. It, just because it's floating around in an asteroid doesn't mean we can get to yeah. it.
1: Oh, there's, there's a there's a very funny solution for that uh, that I heard in the BHP um, <laughs> uh, um, think tank. A- anyway, so so we need say, so so we need uh, 4.7 billion tons tons of copper, right? Stated reserves that is actually economic at current levels. 880 million. So the reserves we have in the ground that we know we can access is 18.6% of what we need to replace what we have around us now. Right. So let's take this forward. For every thousand deposits we discover, only one or two become mines. Okay. And it takes about 15 to 20 years to take a deposit and turn it into a producing mine. Right. And for every 10 producing mines, two or three will will go out of business because of market conditions. So the idea that the mining industry can expand quickly or, or even at all is does doesn't actually doesn't it doesn't actually sit on or what what's facing it in fact the whole commodities industry has not been understood by the economists who claim to manage it
0: and that's before we look at the environmental impacts of the mining, yeah. which presumably are pretty horrific, and if we're wanting to actually heal the biosphere, we need to not yep. be damaging it with whatever the
1: runoffs are of every mining output. Is that a thing? So the people who actually run the hedge funds, who are actually control this system, I call them the Muppets of Cutthroat Island, right? They don't yes. care right. about what you just said. They claim to, but actually they don't.
0: Because all they want to do is make money. That's right. What are they going to do when the money ceases to have any value? Because it's going to do that quite soon, if what you're saying
1: is right. I believe they've been game theoring the coming crash, and they they have a plan where they've already got all the money. So it's not about money; hmm. it's maintenance of power. Hmm. They're at the top of the food chain, and on the other side of this crash, they want to stay on top of the food chain. Yeah. Uh, question: How does a small number of people keep a large number of people in place? To accept crushing food shortages and austerity measures when it becomes apparent that the muppets in question knew this was a problem and, and knew this was a problem decades ago and did nothing to help us. So this is the this is the purpose of the the uh, surveillance state. This is the purpose behind uh, the World Economic Forum Great Reset. Okay. Yeah, behind all the nice words, what are they actually looking at? Uh, this is the purpose behind uh, how we've been convinced to fight each other. And we've been encouraged to fight each other. While we're doing that, we're not looking at the Muppets.
0: Hmm. Yeah, we're all staring at how many small boats are approaching. Uh, you know, Apparently, there are there are 100 million people set to come in small boats to Britain, which is more than the entire population of Britain, and would take several hundred years at the current rate. But anyway, never mind. I have a question on that, because I thought about this quite a long time ago, and it struck me that if I were one of the people in power, Cory Doctorow has a brilliant line on this. Have you ever read his book, Walk Away?
1: No, but I've heard of it. You
0: definitely, I think you would like it. I'll ask you a question about that in a minute. Remind me. But he said, one of the, what he calls Zotter rich says, it's all about the power. The money is just a way of keeping score. That's right. And But it always struck me in that book and elsewhere is if I had that much power, I wouldn't bother trying to control people. I would just get rid of them because they're, you know, at that level, you know that the population of humanity is destroying the planet. And if you want a planet to be survivable, you only need a very small number to grow the food to keep you happy. The rest are surplus to requirements, and they haven't yet. So either they're extremely incompetent or they're not very bright, or both. And there's probably a third option I haven't thought of.
1: So you have to remember that these people, um, if it helps to understand what they're doing if you think like a psychopath. Because a lot of them are psychopaths, right? And a lot of things make sense. Yeah. Now, in 1972, the Club of Rome released the Limits to Growth Study. And they were panned, and they were bagged, and there were all sorts of things. But the Council on Foreign Relations at the time had a couple of meetings where they actually discussed the outcomes. Now, in this, uh, everyone looks at the base case scenario, and that's the famous one. They actually had 13 scenarios where the first one's the base case scenario. They looked at, for example, all sorts of things, like what would happen if uh, we had effective birth control. Or what would happen if we tripled food production? Or what happens if, say, resources were doubled? You know what happens if you know technology became twice as efficient? Really big things. And they found a population crash happened in every single scenario. That is, uh, so you know the the base case scenario: how you've got like um, resources decline, and then you get food production peaks and declines, and soon after that you've got industrial pollution peaks and declines, and then you've got the population peaks and declines. That peak and decline of population in across all 13 scenarios could, could be delayed, but it could never actually be prevented.
0: So the question then is, can we do it in ways that are generative and decent? I remember Kate saying, um, donut economics, that she didn't lie awake worrying about the population because we knew how to control it because we just needed to educate the women. And so I'm wondering, is there a way where we reduce our population by women like me simply choosing not to have kids? A, a cultural way?
1: Uh, education of, of of women does correlate with you know population growing less. And in fact, uh, uh, back to good old Elon, uh, he's actually often come out and, and and said that we've actually got a problem with population decline, as in we're not replacing a. Our uh, fertility replacement rate is actually declining, like the population of Japan is shrinking.
0: Uh, like this is a bad thing?
1: It is if you think in terms of maintaining economic activity and technology systems. Right. But they also think in terms of, well, this country like Japan is going down. Uh, the West is going down. But what they don't mention is India is going up, Africa is going up.
0: China's got a three-child policy now,
1: yes. And so, you know, and... Well, they do dumbass things at their at policy level, and you know a lot of the Mao stories that stories about what Mao proposed and and, and did, and there's the consequences of. The problem is, you've got a serious – Everything that Musk has said is actually correct. There's data to prove it. There's a parallel set of issues, though. We are harvesting more stuff, resources out of the environment that can be sustainably replaced by the environment. Yeah. Right, so how we're doing, it. and so we're over our skis in terms of what's long-term sustainable for the planet yep now back to the Council on Foreign Relations, they actually came to the conclusion right and and they remember how does a rich person think? do they think in terms of like we're here for the betterment of humanity and we're, we want to make a better world or is it something else?
0: okay, it might be the something else
1: <laughs> the empirical evidence suggests something else, yeah right so they used to think in terms of every single one of those scenarios, resources were depleted. And they made the sense that those useless eaters are consuming our resources. Right. So they actually came to the conclusion that resources were being depleted. Human, deeper to popu- human population crash could not be avoided. On the other hand, the idea of growth was actually the source of their power. Right, So they could not shut down the growth engine without losing power. So how do they maintain power, but then uh, um stop this problem of their resources being consumed? Right? And so then you put those things together and and they came to the conclusion that, well, what we need is a sharp reduction in population for us to get mm. through this.
0: Oh, they did. Okay, because that's that's where I get to quite fast, is why am I still alive? Because I'm clearly one of the wasted mouths, and yet
1: I haven't been eradicated. No, we'll, we'll, well, hang on, hang on. There's a thing called the depopulation agenda, population control. The book is called Population Control by Jim Mars. He lays out their plans to do this what mars does not pick up on is that there is indeed a problem with population. Mm. So you've got a problem here on multiple fronts where they've taken the truth wrapped it in a lie or taken a lie and wrapped it in a truth.
0: Uh, that happens quite often.
1: To actually engineer an outcome that benefits them but not everyone else. There were alternatives. They could have done something else. Well, of course. Right right, right. and and yes. so yeah. And so so this is this is the source of the problem. Uh, and for example a lot of the food shortages that i believe we'll face later this year um that we're we're seeing a lot of them didn't have to happen
0: yes there's a book that i plan to read soon called the agricultural dilemma how not to feed the world by glenn davis stone which i believe the person who pointed to me at it told me that it it highlights the ways in which the food circulation problems and and even the problems of growing food are are entirely false, basically. They're they're products of the market rather than being products of the actual logistics of growing food. And we have an industrial growth system, an industrial farming system, which is not what we need. But we also have a dominant narrative that tells us that without pouring chemicals on the land, we won't be able to feed a growing world. We're coming to the end of our time for this podcast. What we've got to is there are absolute. Material constraints, logistical constraints of the amount of stuff that we can get and the amount of power it will take to get it that limits how much we can manufacture, mine and manufacture and make in the coming decades. We're going to hit some of those road bumps quite soon. If I've understood from you, I think we're going to hit some of them very soon. And yet, I've heard you say that we need the environmental movement needs to make friends with the mining movement or the whole green agenda is not going to happen. In the last couple of minutes, can we go over that or is that a topic for the next podcast?
1: Yes, we can. No, 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 we can do that. We can do that. Uh, What what we are faced with is a situation where we have more problems than we thought. Now, the solution set that we have at the moment, some of them are known. Some of them are known in our past, but we've rejected them. Right. We've got to look at everything again. What we're faced with is a version of Plato's cave.
0: Right. Remember the allegory of Plato's
1: cage? Right. So we've been, uh, um, we, we believe we see reality in a certain way, but actually it doesn't have to be that way.
0: We're just seeing the shadows on the wall.
1: Yes. Right. So we've actually got to leave the cave. Okay. That's, that's what we were there. So to phase out fossil fuels, fossil fuels, whether we like it or not, are going. And have to go quite fast. Peak oil could well be 2018, November. Uh, now, now the gas industry. Art Berman has done some excellent work to show how the gas industry is supporting, supplanting the the oil industry. So, what we call peak oil needs to evolve, but crude oil production is declining, and I don't think it's coming back.
0: But also, even if it's not, if we keep chucking carbon into the atmosphere, we're going to hit tipping points from which we can't step
1: back. Is is that right? I mean, that's what I've understood. So, I think the situation's more complex than that. And the carbon in the atmosphere is a minor issue compared to species die-off, oceans acidification, land degradation. Okay. What I learned on the organic farm, you know, back in the... And Bev, if you're listening to this, thank you. I learned a lot from you. So Beverly Buckley, she's written a couple of books. So there was a group of trees that had a fungus on them. One side of the orchard, we put some herbicide on, on it to try and sort of, you know, wipe the fungus out. We ran out of fungicide, and on the other side, we actually put some fertilizer to balance the soil. We come back six months later. The ones that we put the herbicide on, the herbicide, the the fungus was still there, but it was less. The trees still weren't very healthy. They Hmm. were still alive, but hanging on only just. The other side that we just balanced the uh, soil in, the fungicide was gone, and the trees were thriving.
0: The fungus was gone. Because there was no fungicide. The fungus was gone without fungicide. No more chemicals actually just help the trees to develop their own immunity. Yes.
1: Yeah. So 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 you can either put a lot of energy into try and fix stop the problem from happening, or you can put your energy into helping the system progress to the next stage and thrive. And then the problem, whatever it is, gets wiped out. Yes,
0: this is the principle of regenerative agriculture. We we talk about it on the podcast a lot. So yes.
1: So, but now you've got a scaling problem. How do you convince 8 billion billion people to do that? And how do you put them in a position where they can do that? So the only technologies we have going forward are things like wind turbines, solar panels, geothermal. They're the things that we actually sort of have to to do at the moment. And the only way we can do that is by mining of minerals.
0: Hmm.
1: So the system, the green transition will happen, but it'll be much smaller than we think. Right. And it's a stepping stone to something else, but it absolutely is necessary. So if the green if the climate movement um actually wants to get anywhere and actually have any relevance at all, they have to literally partner up with the mining industry to the point where they're working together and they're not fighting each other anymore.
0: Does either side of that want
1: they're starting to. They're st-
0: to do, I can imagine me persuading my environmental friends that they need to talk to the mining industry. I struggle to imagine the Muppets of Cutthroat Island wanting to talk to the environmentalists. And it seems like they're the guys pulling the strings.
1: No, the the Muppets are the people in charge at the money level, and they are three or four degrees separated from, from physical reality. Okay. The people who do the mining are actually, a lot of them are environmentalists themselves. But the environmentalists won't talk to them. Okay. They are already there. right. This is a lot of deceit in current society at the moment and bad faith, uh, circular thinking. We have a very serious problem where when the average person understands how much they've been lied to, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: they will get very, very angry and there will be a very natural uh, um, pushback.
0: Let's leave with the idea, I think, that those of us in the environmental movement need somehow to be talking to the people on the ground in the mining industry and working out what we actually need how we could actually get it in ways that are not going to destroy the the biosphere, and will leave the land healthier. And I've heard you say that it is possible to do mining and to leave behind something that was better than what we started with, or at least not as not any worse. Yeah.
1: So, the, so what that is actually about is they talk about zero waste mining, and that's bullshit. What I what what I would like to see happen instead is what I call zero impact mining. Okay. Go out to an area, mine it. And when you're finishing, you do the land rehabilitation, uh, it's actually possible to um, do the rehabilitation where the plants are put back are exactly the same way. And if you do it properly, you won't even notice there was a mine there if you were to walk over that land, say, 20 years later. Okay. Right? And, and that is entirely possible.
0: Okay.
1: Uh, there, there is this technology to do that. What I'm now proposing is every time we mine, not only do we put the land back the way it was. But while we're actually doing it, re-establish the soil food web and actually make it a biodiversity hub. And that biodiversity hub wouldn't have existed before.
0: Okay. That, I think we're going to carry that into the next podcast because I think that's really exciting and I think there's quite a lot of depth to that. But we're so far over time on this one. Let's call it a date, that one. Thank you. And we'll be back very soon with another one. Thank you, Simon. Okay. And... That's it for now. With enormous thanks to Simon. I didn't read every single report that Simon has written because they're about 800 pages long, really. And you'll find them on his website if you want to read them. And they are amazing. But his YouTubes are there too. And I did watch quite a lot of those and read the stuff I could get my head around. And in the end, we spent four hours talking. So that was the first hour and we concluded and then we went off and had a cup of tea and wandered around and fed the animals and shut the chickens up and all those good things. And then we came back and the second one was, I think, another three hours. It was certainly a lot longer than one. So we will split the second part of this conversation. We'll put it out in a couple of weeks time to give you time to digest this one and also so I don't mangle my schedule completely. And I hope and believe that it will be the first in what could be quite a long series because Simon is pretty much the only person that I have found who can get to grips with the bricks and mortar in ways that look at where we're getting the bricks and the mortar from and then how much we're going to need and how we might physically fit the world together in such a way that we can build the communities of place and passion and purpose that are going to see us through. So, we will be back next week with another conversation. Next week it won't be Simon, it will be somebody else, but Simon will be in a couple of weeks' time. And in the meantime, extraordinary thanks to Caro for making the sound work and for sorting out the breakpoints in our conversation. Thanks to Faith for the website and the conversations that keep me and us moving forward, to Anne Thomas for the transcripts, and, as always, to you for listening. We wouldn't be here without you, and we are weakly grateful that you're there. And because I still believe that word of mouth is by far the best way we are going to change the world, if you know of anybody else who would like to get to grips with some of the logistics of what's going on, then please do send them this link. And that's it for now. See you next week. Thank you and goodbye.